Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. The Greenhouse Show on KSL News Radio. Good morning. Thank you for joining us for the KSL Greenhouse Show. Maria Shaleos, Tom Bettis with you. We are taking your calls at 801-575-8255. You can text us at 57500. Rick is on the line in Taylorsville. Good morning, Rick. What is your question? Thank you. Um, my question is, we have a piece of recreational property, and um, it's about an acre. There's uh, pine trees, some aspen trees, and just natural vegetation. There's no grass or anything like that. But um, when we go up there, we generate quite a bit of ash from the from the fire pit. And of course, after it's cooled down and everything with the ash, I'm just wondering, is it safe? Is it beneficial? Is it harmful to spread that among the ground vegetation? Or is that harmful to it? Is that beneficial to it? What's your What's your recommendation there? Well, in too great of quantities, it's very harmful. But, you know, one thing that helps rejuvenate soil in forest areas is when an occasional fire comes through, it adds a lot of micronutrients back into the soil. And so if you are spreading that ash, I would spread it out so that no area gets ash more than once every year or two and only Mm -hmm. a quarter of an inch. So you really need to spread it. And so then it's not going to harm anything. And I imagine you're getting more rain and snow up there than we yes. do in the valleys that will help flush yes. it into the soil but no area gets it more than once or twice a year and no more than a quarter of an inch very good i appreciate that very much thank you you're All welcome right. thanks for your call this morning next listener wants to know they have a brilliant autumn service berry that they planted about three years ago they say the branches on the top north side didn't grow and they're wondering if topping would help i don't know if topping would do anything that's just a term that it in the horticulture and arborist worlds kind of makes you shiver a little bit. Mm. But if they were going to try something, they would just follow those branches back to a side branch or to a bud and then just clip here and there. And so one thing they might try doing is some tip pruning to where they're just following the branch back three or four inches and cutting back to a bud and that will force some new growth on those branches. And so instead of the, the general term of topping, sounds like a haircut. I would do some (laughs) educated and planned tip pruning on those few branches to see if that would help. Okay. Next listener says or asks, what is a good overbearing raspberry variety to grow in the Farmington area? Polka or Polana are both really good. Polka is super productive, and it'll give you a summer crop and a fall crop, or you can cut it to the ground in late spring or in late winter and just give you a really heavy fall crop. So either are fine. 
Joan Jay is another one that people seem to like. Prelude is one I've talked to people. Autumn Britain is another one. There's several out there, but the most productive is going to be Polka. And then Polana is right behind it, but it has slightly more tender fruit and it has a slightly sweeter flavor. Hmm. People talk a lot about, ask a lot of questions about raspberries, blackberries. We rarely hear about blueberries. Huh. Yeah. We know um, Blair, Bear Lake, they can grow blueberries. Uh, not really. Oh. <laughs> they, um, there's one person in the Cache Valley, uh, Merv Weeks, who owns Weeks Berries of Paradise. I think his boys have taken it over. Mm-hmm. But he has a pocket of soil on his property that's either a granite or a quartz base soil. Mm-hmm. And so it's naturally lower pH already. And it is probably closer to a pH of seven, which is neutral, which opens it up to being a little bit better for those acid soil loving plants. But then they do a lot to treat the soil to keep the pH even lower, you know, with sulfur burners and things. And so the only commercial grower of blueberries in Utah is Merv Weeks and Weeks Berries of Paradise. And they put a lot of work into getting those berries. So for a homeowner, if you want to try to grow blueberries, you need to make a raised bed. They're my favorite, you know. Yeah. They're, That's what I put in my smoothie in the morning. Yeah. It, so a raised bed, you know, six inches tall with almost like a potting mix, you know, an outdoor pot, uh, gardening mix, like raised bed soil with some extra peat moss mixed into it. Then you're going to have to water with miracle Grow mirror acid along with your irrigation, not just water with it, but use it every couple of weeks. And make sure you maybe have that on the east side of your home. So I always thought it was the climate, not the soil. It's the climate, too. Okay. And so we're so dry that they're not really adapted to that either. But oh, it's so the they're soil. not water-wise. No, they're not drought-tolerant at all. I mean, these are generally, and they've been changing this a little bit, but they're generally grown in bogs. And when they're harvested, the machines will strip the berries off, and then those berries are floated, and they're collected off the top of the water using nets. And so they're definitely a, an acid soil, moist soil loving plant. And so to create that environment in your yard can be rather expensive and you're only doing it for the hobby because it's, it's a money pit. And so you're cheaper to go buy. I have much, much more appreciation, for, better appreciation for the cost of blueberries now. Yes. And so you're, you're far cheaper to buy them than you are to actually try to grow them. And, you know, when I was in uh, fruit production, my professor went through this whole process and he said, you know, the, the acidifying fertilizers and making sure that you're putting peat moss there once or twice a year and lightly raking it in and, you know, that shade, maybe even a shade cloth over them. And he says, if you finally get your berries ready and you fly to Portland, Maine and pick them. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't have that much time to be babysitting. No, if I have to babysit plants, we're in trouble. Are one that, I mean, it's not that you're out there for hours every day, but so, every week you're doing stuff constant. to try to maintain those. And the blueberries are in the same family as rhododendrons, azaleas, cranberries, and they're just really difficult to grow in our climate. You know, the Pacific Northwest and east of the Mississippi, 
where acidic soil is the norm, you know, that's where the, the, those things thrive. Mm-hmm. So the most underplanted berry that does well here, we were looking at some at the demonstration garden when we were up with Sheridan. Was that serviceberry? Serviceberry is one, and it's actually really caught on in Canada. They call them Saskatoons up there, and they are used as an off-season blueberry. And there's actual varieties you can purchase for fruit production. That do well here. That do, yeah, they may get a little bit of iron chlorosis, not being native, but that's manageable. And then you do need to manage birds because birds love that, the fruit, but what fruit don't they love? Mm -hmm. But yeah, there are, in Canada, there's actually quite a few acres of commercial service berry or Saskatoon production, and you would use them like blueberries. All right. Phone lines are open. We're going to take a break. Come back with more of your calls and questions. Number to call, 801-575-8255. Text us at 57500. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Good morning. Thank you for joining us for the KSL Greenhouse. Maria Anton with you, taking your calls and your questions. Let's go back to our phone lines. And Shanna is in Syracuse. Is it Shana or Shanna? Shanna. Good morning, Shanna. What is your question? I have a nectarine tree in my yard. It, this will be its third year of bearing. At the base of the tree, at the trunk, um, there is another tree trying to grow out of that. The base of that is probably an inch, inch and a half around, and I'm wondering it does have other branches coming off of that other branch, which maybe you'd call it a sucker branch, I don't know, but I'm wondering if I can take that and cut that down, and if so, how deep would I need to cut in order to get enough root to replant that other one and make another tree you would kill the tree trying to do that and i would just cut it out and not deal with it throw it away (laughs) yeah because if the top of the tree is healthy all that side sucker is doing is drawing energy away from those upper branches becoming strong and healthy and so especially if it's coming from below the graft it definitely needs to be cut out Okay. All right. I will take care of it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Shanna, thanks so much for your call this morning. Next listener, Ton says, is it too early to prune grapes? It is. The, normally, USU, up until five, six, seven years ago, would have had the grapes 
recommended the grapes be pruned in mid-January. But what we're finding is that the weather going from sub-zero weather to the 40s down in the single digits isn't really good Not for the grapes when they're pruned. Mm. And so we're now recommending they be pruned sometime mid to late March to early April. They do bleed, but it doesn't seem to hurt them. But it's just a lot more moderate period of time to where you can look at the grapes ahead of time to see if they do have winter damage and prune accordingly. But it also is just easier on the grapes. Okay. Uh, next listener is Kevin in Centerville. Good morning, Kevin. What is your question? Good morning. Yes. Uh, we completed our house in 2019. We put in our yard uh, some turf grass in two, 2020. Um, since then, it has all died off. Uh, we want to reseed with a more drought-tolerant seed, like a tall fescue. Uh, we're just wondering what the preferred prep work is. We've, we've considered just bringing in four inches of topsoil and reseeding over that. Um, my concern with that is, well, we would like the... Well, we would like the existing turf grass to maybe be an organic material. My concern with that is that we're not breaking up the soil enough and any mold or diseases that may already be existing in that other turf grass sod will just transfer up through the, through the topsoil into the new seed. So what would be the preferred method on reseeding over an uh, old dead yard? Well, I... We'll give you a couple options. First, on your lawn prep, you're going to have to probably till up the old uh, grass and rake out the chunks instead of bringing in more topsoil. If you need to raise grade, till out the old grass first and then do it. Otherwise, if you're going to spend the money, I would rather see you get rid of the old sod that's dead and then spend money on compost and till that into the soil. So are you above or below the bluff? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. We are, we are, we are east of Main Street in Centerville. East of, oh, in Centerville. I was thinking Syracuse. I'm sorry. The last caller was from Syracuse. So never mind on that. I apologize. So on your grass then, so you're going to have to do the prep till the compost in, if you're going to spend the money. And then as far as seed, I like fescue. And I up your way, Great Basin Turf carries some pretty good mixes. Um, if you're ever down in Lehigh, Granite Seed will have some pretty good mixes also. And I've got a lot of my lawn is turf-type tall fescue, and I've been relatively happy with it. Now, if you're truly wanting to go drought-hardy, there is another grass called buffalo that the seed is going to be much more expensive initially, but it only requires half the irrigation of bluegrass. And so about every 10 days to two weeks, and it does make a pretty good turf. But the drawback is, is that buffalo grass is only green from mid-May through mid to late September, and then it goes dormant. And when it's dormant, it just goes straw yellow. And so... You know, if you don't have a lot of kids playing on it or anything, when it's dormant, buffalo would be the most readily available drought-hardy grass. But for something that stays green from mid-March or late March through mid-November at least, I think the turf-type tall fescue may be a better option. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for your call. And the next listener wants to know when is the best time to seed their lawn? 
Sometime, there's two times of the year, sometime from late March through mid-April to when the soil can be worked and uh, raked and things without it sticking and being gummy. And then this other, the best time of the year is actually in mid to late August, because even though it's still hot, then it's going to be cooling down and you don't get near the weeds germinating in August that you do in the spring. Mm-hmm. And so I like to establish lawns in the fall or late summer into early fall just because of the decreased competition from weeds. Uh, next listener says the neighbor's dog urinates on their shrubs and they want to know if that damages them. Over time it can, especially if sprinklers are not flushing that urine into the soil. And so it might be something that they need to talk to the neighbors to see if they can prevent that, or, and I hate going this route, calling animal control, they would need some videos of it, because that's not that's not right to let your dog go out and just go to the bathroom wherever. You know, it'd be responsible and, you know, do your due diligence and just be polite, a polite neighbor, and the neighbors may not even know. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that the dog could just be scent marking. And as it explores, but it, I would get some video of it just in case, but just a, a friendly chat with the neighbors may stop it. Yeah, I have a neighbor who had just these small little boxwoods and the next door neighbor's dog would urinate on them and they eventually would turn yellow and yeah. and part the side would die where the dogs were urinating. Yeah, the salts will do that and it can over time, especially newly planted things, can scorch and kill. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's really tough to have that conversation, though, I have to tell you. It is. And unfortunately, you don't want to be that neighbor, you know, that calls. The whining neighbor. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you have rights also as a homeowner. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have pets that are responsible and don't let that happen. But there's always a few around. And sometimes it's accidental. But, you know, I think decency would be that you talk to the neighbors and the neighbors just like, you know, I'm sorry. We'll see what we can do to stop it from happening. Mm-hmm. But if the dog is let out to run the neighborhood without a leash and supervision, that's not legal to do. Yeah. I think part of the problem, too, is that people just don't realize the damage that does. Because dogs yeah. are going to do what they're going to do. They're going to. I have dogs, love dogs, um, but they're going to, if if you let them, they're going to do their business wherever they choose. Yeah, they'll find an area away from their food source. And so home is the food source. And so their genetics dictate they go somewhere else and use the bathroom. And so that's where we need to get them trained and contained and just be good citizens and to prevent a lot of that. Right. We need to take a break for the top of the hour news. Our phone lines are open. You can call us 801-575-8255. Text us 57500. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? 
in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.